I got a little bit carried away this week, and I'm going to make some edits on the fly here uh, so that we can all make it home to lunch in a reasonable time period. Uh, so, last week, we talked about uh, baptism, right? Uh, how John the Baptist was preaching this baptism of repentance. Repent of your sins uh, and, and turn back to God. And Jesus comes and gets baptized by him. Um, and upon the occasion of Jesus' baptism, God speaks. The heavens open and God speaks and said, This is my beloved son. You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. And he sends the Spirit to equip Christ for the work that was to come. And in that baptism, in Christ's baptism, he identifies himself with us. He was and always was the Son of God. But in baptism, he adds, he adds to that identity, identity so that he is no longer just the Son of God, but he is also baptized into us into humanity. He becomes the son of man as well, subject to the same weaknesses and frailty that we are. And so we see that, that, that um, kind of uncomfortable juxtaposition of the incarnation where you have the infinite contained within the finite. You have the sinless in a, in a weak, frail human body. But he identified himself with us so that he could become our champion, our redeemer, the one who would buy us out of our slavery to sin and to death. And when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him, we are united with him. We become one with him. He lives in us and we live in him. And we, like he was, are given the spirit to empower us for each one of our individual ministries. And we are given the right to be called children of God. So if you could please turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 1. It says, And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. So we see Christ being filled with the Spirit and the Spirit leading him out into the wilderness, into this place of difficulty. The Spirit led him into the middle of that difficulty. I think that that's important for us to see there. Uh, and most of the time when we see 40-somethings, 40, 40 lengths of time, whether it's 40 days or, or 40 years in the Bible, that is generally a time of, of testing and a time of proving Right? Moses spent 40 years in the, in the desert as a shepherd before he returned to Egypt to lead Israel out. He spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting on the mountain before he received the law. Uh, Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. Jonah proclaimed to Nineveh, in 40 days, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And so 40 somethings, 40 days, 40 years, seems to be a length of time where somebody is tested. Their intentions and their purpose and their character is revealed. And so during that 40 days of fasting, Christ underwent temptation by the devil. Now, the Bible doesn't speak a lot explicitly about who the, the devil is. He's, he's there as the enemy, the accuser, the adversary. 
And we see in Isaiah Isaiah 14 that he desired to be in the place of God. Um, So God speaking to him says, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So he desired to be in the place of God. He desired to have what God has for himself. And having been defeated, not being able to achieve that, he twists, he distorts, he deceives, trying to steal glory from God, trying to steal what is rightfully God's for himself. And this was necessary, just like Jesus' baptism was, to fulfill all righteousness. Right? Because Jesus came to do what was required of us, but that which we failed to do. And so during this time of testing, he must resist that temptation to sin. Because goodness knows, we certainly don't. Now the full extent of his temptation, we don't know. We see these three uh, specific temptations, but over the course of that 40 days, we have no idea what sort of assault he was under. But at the end of it, after 40 days without food, he was hungry. Probably one of the most obvious statements in, in all of scripture. He was hungry. He was at his weakest. He was at his most fragile. He was alone. He was hungry. He was tired. And then the devil steps it up. Verse 3. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Now, in this, in, in this little bit of dialogue, we see both an acknowledgement on the part of Satan of Christ's div- divinity. Right? He is the Son of God. The devil is kind of assuming that. And he's saying, if that's who you are, then you've got the power to take this stone and just make it into bread. Recreate it. Change its very essence. You have that ability. You have that power. And he's tempting him to use it to provide for his own needs. And in doing so, he's tempting him to undermine the trustworthiness of God. Because to do that, for Christ to do that at this point, says, I don't think God's going to provide for me. I I don't think he's going to do it. And so I've got to do it for myself. I need to step in where God has failed to step in. But, but, he, but we need to remember that he's not there to provide for his own needs. Right? He's not there to live a comfortable, easy life. He is here on this earth at this time to do exactly, precisely, and only the will of his Father. He is here to seek and to save the lost. But the devil is using his present circumstances to distract him from the larger picture of that work that he's trying to do. He's trying to, dis- to twist and to distort and to eventually derail that greater work that he is here to accomplish. Verse 4, And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. So he answers with a quote, a little snippet of scripture. But when Jesus does this, he's not just saying these these one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words contain the full answer, but he's using that as a reference. 
right? He's referring back uh, to, to Deuteronomy 8. Now, the whole book of Deuteronomy is Moses, as God through Moses, speaking to the nation of Israel before they go into the promised land, preparing them for what was to come. Uh, and so we see, picking up in, in Deuteronomy 8.1, God says, the, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you in these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you, and he let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So by this little quote, by this little piece of scripture, Jesus is, is reminding himself and reminding Satan about how God provided for the people of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. They didn't survive by bread. They didn't survive by the toil of their hands. But they survived by manna, by this bread from heaven, by every word, by everything that comes from the mouth of God. And by referencing this, he's saying, this is how I live. I am completely dependent on my heavenly father for absolutely everything. And so he's using this scripture. He's using the whole story, not just this little verse, but the whole story that's referenced there to demonstrate that his reliance, to demonstrate his reliance upon his heavenly father to supply all of his needs. He doesn't need to worry about it because God will supply what he needs. And if God doesn't supply it, then he doesn't need it. And furthermore, he doesn't want it because it would be wrong and it would be wrong for him to use his position, his power, his authority to do something that the Father had not commanded him to do, to do something that was outside of the Father's will. And thus thwarted, Satan continues, picking up in verse 5. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment in time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you, then, will worship me, it will all be yours. So all the kingdoms of this world, everything attractive that this world has to offer, it's mine. It was given to me, which is, which is mostly true. It's twisting it a little bit, but it's mine, and you can have it. You can have it, Jesus. All you got to do is just worship me. Just once. And it doesn't even, you don't have to get on the ground, just, you know, a nice bow from the waist would be sufficient. That's good enough. All you need to do is show honor and respect towards me, and I'll give it to you. Bow before me, and it's yours. All of the absolute power of Rome, all of the decadence of, of France pre-revolution, all of the comforts and convenience that we have here in America, it's all yours. So we see, we see some of the devil's true desire, his true intention being revealed here. He desires worship for himself. He longs to be worthy 
of the love that God is worthy of. He wants to be in the place of God the Father. And what better way for him to accomplish that than to have the very Son of God bowing before him, worshiping him. And Jesus answers, verse 8, Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So he does the same thing here. He quotes a little piece of scripture that's part of a a broader story. Again, returning to Deuteronomy. Moses cautioning the people. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you are eat and you are full, then take care. Take care, lest you forget the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. So he quotes the verse, but he's referencing this whole, this whole passage, this whole story, where God is telling Israel not to let the allure, not to let the comforts of their life in the promised land cause them to forget who it was that provided all of these things, who it was that gave them all of these things. Because all of the kingdoms, all of the power, and all of the wealth is ultimately God's and is given by him. This was true for Israel, and in a certain sense, it's true for Satan as well. He is the ruler of this world, but that rule is a, is a temporary delegated rule. And at that moment, there is coming a moment when that rule will be revoked, that authority will be removed, and he will be cast down. But none of these things, none of the promised, uh, none of the good things that God was giving them in the promised land, none of the things that Satan was promising Jesus here is of any value in comparison to God. And so for Jesus to worship Satan, to, to change his allegiance in exchange for all of the power and glory and authority and comfort of this world, it's a net loss for him. He's going to come out behind in that deal. That's what Paul said in uh, Philippians 3, 8. He said, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them all as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All of the kingdoms of this world, all of the power, all of the comfort, all of the glory, Paul says, I'm gladly giving it up because I get Christ and he is of far greater worth and far greater value than any of those things. And so thwarted a second time, Satan continues in verse 9. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan says, fine, you want to play? You want to play the scripture game? You want to play the Bible game? Great. 
Here we go. And he quotes Psalm 91 to him. Now, Psalm 91 is a, is a psalm describing the father's care for the son, the way that he would direct and care for and love this coming Messiah. So in Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12, it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now if you notice, if you notice, Satan did an okay job quoting this. With one minor exception. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So he's leaving in all your ways out. Because this promise, this promise from the Father to the Son is not about his personal safety, right? This is not about stubbed toes, but this is about the work that he has sent him to do. The work that the Father has sent the Son to do. And it's a promise on behalf of the Father that I will see this through to completion. What I have sent you out to do will be done. I will ensure it. And so Satan is taking this piece of scripture and he's twisting it. He's twisting the word of God, taking it out of context, dropping words that are a, a little difficult. And he's making it say what it is that he wants it to say. And that's a danger. It's a danger for all of us, really, that we need to be careful of because we can take the scripture and we can twist it to match our understanding of how the world is supposed to work rather than changing our understanding to match what it is that scripture tells us. Because if you go looking for something in the Bible like that, if you go looking for justification for some belief that you have, you can twist scripture around enough to find it. Right? People have done that with slavery abortion, with racism, with oppression, with abuse, all of, these, all of these behaviors are things that people have turned to the Bible and done what Satan did, pulled a little bit and a little piece, and left out words to make it, to make it say what they wanted it to say. But the question that we need to be asking to protect against that is we need to be asking, how does that story fit in with the rest of Scripture? Because in the end, the Bible is not a rule book, right? and it's not a fortune cookie where we just, you know, we, we can take little bits and pieces of, of encouragement from. But it is the story of a God who loves and redeems an unfaithful people. And to take a single verse, or to take a story, or to take a chapter out of that context that God has placed it in, out of the context of the story of his redemption of us, allows us to shift and to change the meaning, to shift it, to twist it, and to make it about us, to make it into an instruction manual, to make it say what we want. And when we do that, we are sinning. And it's the same sin, ultimately, that Satan commits here. He pulls this passage from Psalm 91 out of its contents. He leaves out the parts that didn't really say what he wanted it to say. And then he treats that twisted, mangled, pair of verses as truth. And Jesus' response to him, I think, is, is a little interesting, and it's a little convicting for me. Uh, in verse 12, And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
So all of that that I just said is true. But Jesus doesn't bring any of that up. There's, there's a caution in 2 Timothy 2 where Paul tells Timothy, uh, charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. And so Jesus points out here that while Satan pointed to a verse that kind of almost said what he said it said, that which he was implying goes against the clear teaching of another part of Scripture, which is Deuteronomy 6, 16. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And that's a reference to uh, a story in Exodus 17 when the people doubted that God was with them. They were in this place and they were thirsty and there was no water. And they began to um, cry out to Moses, tested God, wondering whether or not he was actually there. And that was one of those occasions that Moses struck the rock with his staff and provided water as proof that God was there, that God was there with them. And so the people of Israel all throughout that wandering in the desert were continually putting God to the test, asking him to show them that he was there with them. And they continued with that because even after everything that they had seen in the plagues, in the exodus, in the crossing of the Red Sea, they still had a hard time believing that God was there with them. And so God cautions them here he cautions us. We are called not to put God to the test, but rather to simply have faith. Because putting him to the test, putting him to the test makes it about us. It puts us in control because it, it, it gives us the impression that God has to do this. God, if you are real, you will do this. Well, God's real, so that means that he has to do that. I've boxed him in. And that makes me in control. That makes it seem like I'm in control. We want to be able to dictate terms to God like that. But instead, we must pursue a fundamentally different relationship. Because we cannot, we cannot dictate terms or actions to God. He is the one and only utterly and completely sovereign being. And we have no right to dictate where, when, why, or how he acts. But we are called as his children to love and to trust him regardless of the circumstances, regardless of, of whether or not it means our lives. Verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now there's a structure here to these temptations that, uh, that I think is, is really very interesting. And it's the same structure uh, that the Apostle John uses in, in 1 John 2. Uh, in 1 John 2.15, he writes, do not, love the thing, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. 
So John calls us here to, to follow the example that Jesus has set. He resisted the call of the things of this world in his temptation. And he remained faithful to the will of God. And the three descriptions that John uses here, the three descriptions of the, of the things of this world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, roughly end up corresponding to these three temptations that Jesus faced. Right? You have the first temptation, the hunger, the physical needs of the body. That's the desires of the flesh. Our physical needs, our physical needs, real or perceived, have the potential to distract us from what it is that we have been called to do. And, it can, and they can cause us to choose the satisfaction of our physical needs over obedience to the will of God. Because ultimately, we have a greater need. We have a greater need than food. We have a greater need than water. We have a greater need than air. We were created to, and we continue to, need God. Because everything that we have comes from him and is given to us through him. And when we satisfy the desires of the flesh in opposition to the will of God, it's a false satisfaction. Right? We are giving up the eternal, the unchangeable, the unquenchable. We are giving that up to satisfy the temporary with temporary things. And then the second temptation that Christ faced the promise of power and honor and glory corresponds to what John lists as the desires of the eyes, this emotional hunger, this longing, this question of what do you long for? What would it take for you to be truly happy, to be truly satisfied in this life? That is what, that is what he's speaking of there with the desires of the eyes. But whatever it is that we, whatever it was that we pointed to, to answer that question, what it was, what it would, what we would need to be truly happy, to be truly satisfied with our lives, is ultimately false. Because what we truly need, what we really need to satisfy us, to, to bring us that true contentment, is God. And to worship something other than him, to devote our lives to the satisfaction of those desires of the eyes in something other than him, it's futile. It will not work. And the attempt to do so is sin. So we have the desires, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life pride of life, a pride in who we are and the things that we have or the things that we might have, the things that we could have. So in the temptation, Satan is tempting Jesus to have this pride of life, to think that you are so important that you could throw yourself off the roof of the temple and God has to catch you. He has to catch you. And if that's true, who's in charge? father or the son. It's a temptation where Satan is tempting Jesus to desire power, prestige, and status. In addition to that parallel in 1 John, there's, an inter there's another parallel that we see in Scripture. When we go back, when we go back to Genesis 3, 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So we see here the similarities between what happened in the garden and what happened to Christ in his temptations. The serpent, the devil, Satan, twisted God's word, brought into doubt God's goodness and truthfulness and faithfulness. And then, then in verse 6, we see this this surprising and, and beautiful parallel between the temptation that Adam and Eve were subjected to and the temptation that Christ was subjected to. Right? In verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food. That's the desires of the flesh. That's the bread from stones. She saw that it was a delight to the eyes. That's the desires of the eyes, the glory of the kingdoms. And it was to be desired to make one wise. That's the pride of life. That's that desire to control God. And Adam and Eve, they fell victim to the lies and deceit of of the great serpent, of the devil. And as a result, mankind was cast out of the garden and enslaved to sin and to death from that point forward. The temptations that Adam and Christ faced were parallel. They they were of the same style. Because the devil has has a pretty limited playbook, right? And that's all that he's ever needed. Because up until Christ, it worked perfectly, without fail. And Adam had an advantage, a significant advantage over Christ. He was full. He lived in paradise with his wife. He walked daily with God. All of his needs were met. But Christ was hungry. He was alone. But in his baptism... He identified himself with mankind as the second Adam, the better Adam, our champion, our Messiah. And immediately after his baptism, he was tempted just like Adam was, but under significantly more difficult circumstances. Now, Adam, he fell, he failed, and he was cast out of the garden, doomed to die, doomed to return to the dust from which he came. But Christ, the second Adam, the greater Adam, succeeded And by his success, by his perfect life, by his death on our behalf, and by his resurrection up out of that dust, he has won for us entry into the eternal garden, into the heavenly garden, the very kingdom of heaven. Where Adam fell, Christ stood. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. And where Adam was defeated, Christ stands today victorious. And there is a... There is a beauty that comes out of that for us. We talked last week about how when we first repent of our sins, when we place our faith in Christ, we are made one with him. Right? We are counted with him. He lives in us and we live in him. 
Our present and our futures are all wrapped up in him. And so as a result, when God speaks to Christ at his baptism and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, he speaks to us saying, this is, you are my beloved son. You are my beloved daughter. Because you are in Christ, that is the attitude I have for you. At his baptism, the father sent the spirit to empower Christ for his work on this earth. And if we are one with him, then we too are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if we are one with him, then we are counted with him in the suffering of temptation. We are tempted just as he was tempted. Uh, this is a subject that the writer of Hebrews spends a, a great deal of time on. He says in, in Hebrews 4, 14, that since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one. But we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And in Hebrews 2, he says, Therefore, he, has to, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. See, Christ stands at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us, advocating for us, taking our side in the trials and tribulations of our lives. And if he was tempted, if he was tempted in his perfection, and if we are one with him, then we should expect to be tempted too. He said as much in John 15, when he said, remember the word I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And so we are tempted because he was tempted also. But we do not face the temptations of our lives alone. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have the very Son of God advocating for us. Advocating for us when we are in the place that he has already been. He is saying to us. He is saying to our Heavenly Father. I've been there. I've experienced that, that temptation. And I overcame it. And they are one with me. They're mine. And so if I overcame it, then they have overcome it as well. We have forgiveness. We have forgiveness because of that perfect obedience. And in him, we are also given the power to overcome sin. It says, Romans, it says in Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members as, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. We have been made one with him. We have been made one with the one who has defeated sin and death. And so sin no longer has dominion over us. In Christ, we have defeated sin. And in Christ, we will one day see sin and death itself cast into that lake of fire, destroyed 
and undone forever. And so when we undergo temptation, when we are tempted, we are not being tempted from a position of weakness, but we are being tempted from a position of power, filled with the Holy Spirit and standing on the firm foundation of Christ's finished work. And so we strive, we fight against temptation, we resist sin, knowing that in our successes and in our failures, it's Christ who gets the glory for all of it. Because in our failure, we get to point to him. We get to say, God is good, God is perfect, and I have fallen short of his glory. But my standing before the Father, my place as a child of God is not based on my performance. It's not based on my ability to do these things, but it is all based on Christ's performance and what he has done, even just in these few short verses today. In our failure, we get to point to him. And in our successes, we get to point to him. In our successes, we get to say, yes, yes. Christ has overcome, Christ has conquered this sin in my life right now. Yes, I am becoming a little bit more like Jesus because that's what we want, right? That's what we want. We want to be made a little bit more every day like Jesus is. So if we fail, Christ gets the glory. If we succeed, Christ gets the glory. In everything that we do, it is Christ that we seek to glorify. But, that, but this requires of us, if we're going to truly live it out together, a certain level of authenticity and community. Because if we traipse in here once a week on Sunday morning, we put on our nice church smile, yeah, no, everything, good, good, yeah, yeah, how are you, yeah, good, good, glad to hear it, and, and that's about it. There's no opportunity for you to see my failures, and my successes, which means there's no opportunity there for you to rejoice in the work that God has been doing. There's no opportunity there for you to encourage me after that failure. Because if we fail, our brothers and our sisters have to see that. They have to see that to be able to love us and encourage us through that. And if we succeed, if God does something in us, if God overcomes the sin in our lives, the temptations, then that it is tremendously difficult for us to encourage one another with that if nobody knew that that was a problem for us in the first place. So this requires authenticity in our relationships. It requires community that goes beyond a few shared hours on a Sunday morning. But in our successes and in our failures, in our wins and our losses, we must keep our eyes fixed firmly permanently on Christ. Now, there's a temptation here for me to, uh, to lay out some good, solid, practical steps to help you resist temptation. Clayton sent me a, um, a, a quiz. You know, some people do, what Hogwarts house are you? Or, you know, which dessert are you? Well, he sent me a quiz the other day, which is, which type of preacher are you? And, and it came out that, um, that my 
most common tendency is to be very practical. And so I really want to say, here's 10 steps to resisting temptation. Here's three ways to fight temptation in your life. And it's true, we need the word, the way that Christ used the word. We need the power of the spirit. And we've been given the people of God to help us in these things. But ultimately, what we need is not a 10-step program. It's not a 12-step program. It's not three secrets to a, to a better, stronger fight against sin. Because if it, was, if it was three things that we needed, if it was three magic steps to follow, then we could have figured it out by now. We wouldn't need Christ. All of those things make it about, about us, right? Because if, if there's... 12 steps for us to follow, and we fail at it, I'm just not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm just garbage, and there's no point in even trying. Or if we succeed, that's actually even a little bit worse, because then we get to say, I'm pretty good at this whole not sinning thing. I'm pretty strong. I got this down. And in either case, we are neglecting. We're rejecting the truth of Christ. Because what we need, friends, is not steps to a better life, steps to fighting sin. What we need is Jesus. He is the one who has overcome. He has the, is the one who has endured. He is the one who has lived and died and is alive forevermore. And it is only in him, it is only in him that we will find deliverance and salvation from the sin that besets us. And so we must be constantly repenting, turning away from the world and towards him as our only hope. And when we surrender, when we surrender all of these things to him, when we give them up to him, we find that none of the things that we give up, none of the things that we turn away from could ever have brought the hope or the help or the love or the meaning or the significance that we find in him. Because it is only in him that we will find peace, and contentment, and love, and joy. It is only in him that we will find that which we have been searching for. Let's pray. Father, we, we confess that we have sought satisfaction, and meaning, and value, and purpose, and love, and belonging in all sorts of places that, that are not you. We confess that we give in to temptation too easily. We turn aside too readily. So Father, we repent of that today. Father, we ask your forgiveness for those things today. And we ask that as we as we step out into the week to come, God, that you would be empowering us through your spirit, that you would be feeding us on your word. Father, that you would be placing the people of God around us to enable us to live lives that reflect you and your goodness and your glory and your love and your mercy. And that, Father, that you would give us the strength that we need to reject the lives to reject the lives that are dedicated to the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh and the pride of life. Father, we 
reject those things and we turn and we look to you for our salvation. We look to you for our hope. We look to you for our peace, Father. And we look forward to that day when all of these things that we see dimly and we experience in part, Father, that we will see them clearly. We will know them fully. Father, we long for that day when we will be able to see you face to face and worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Thank you.